Well, good morning, church. Oh, you can do better than that. Good morning, church. There we go. There we go. I'm Scott, and glad to be here today. If you weren't here last Sunday, this is my second Sunday to be with you. I'm honored to be with you. I want to talk to you about Steve. Steve, when he graduated from first grade to second grade, his first grade teacher threw herself a personal party. When Steve went from second grade to third grade, his second grade teacher rededicated herself to teaching, having thought all year, I am quitting. I will never, ever teach another year. Steve was rowdy. Steve was disruptive, and, and the teachers couldn't quite figure it out. But in third grade, he did some things that kind of put him on the radar, if you will, of the principal. One thing he did was he put fireworks... <laughs> And this is not a suggestion. Now, by the way, some people say, my kids are here. You're impressioning upon them. No, I'm not trying to impress anything. But he put fireworks underneath her chair, and, and she, they went off while she was sitting there, and she has a twitch to this day. Another thing he did, he and another friend printed up flyers that said, bring your pet next Tuesday. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. Unauthorized. They distributed these flyers all over the school, and... Everything from rats, you know, to just about giraffes showed up the next Tuesday. And so he made the front page of the elementary school newspaper. And so the principal evaluated him going into fourth grade. And so um, the principal put Steve in Teddy's class. Miss Teddy was her name. Her name is Imogene Hill. But Steve was put in Miss Teddy's class because... The principal had a suspicion that the real problem with Steve is he's under-challenged, underutilized. Steve goes into fourth grade, and sure enough, Miss Teddy evaluates him. Within a couple weeks, she asks him to stay after class, and there she sat down and sat him down and said, Now, Steve, I've got something for you. And he's excited about this. He became more excited when she said, I have a crisp $5 bill to give you. And then she reached in her purse and pulled out a giant lollipop and said, I've got a $5 bill and a lollipop, but here is what I'd like for you to do to get these two things. And she then grabbed a workbook, a, a math workbook off her desk and slid it to Steve and said, this is homework. He didn't like schoolwork at school, much less homework, but he, he cut his eyes over at the lollipop and the $5 bill and said, hey, wait a minute. So he went home. With these words ringing his ear, it'll take you two or three weeks probably to get this workbook. Take your time, but just get it done. And when you get it done, here's your prize. Here's your reward. Well, he did it in a matter of about a week, and he came back to Miss Teddy's desk, and he said, here it is, and it was finished. And he got his lollipop, and he got his $5 bill. And he's, but before he could skip out, she said, wait, Steve, I've got something else for you. She pulled out another $5 bill out of her wallet, and a lollipop out of her purse and said, Steve, if you'll do this science workbook, I've got another $5 bill and a lollipop for you. He went home, and not in three weeks or two weeks, but in about a week he'd finished that science workbook. This went on for about a month, a little over a month, until he finally showed up and said, here's the most recent workbook. Keep your $5 bill. Keep your lollipop. Do you have another workbook? Some of you are thinking to yourself, she bought him. 
I have my authority as a teacher in the room. My wife's a fourth grade teacher, and I've run this illustration by her, and it's been approved. But before you cluck your tongue and say, is that the right way to go? Let me ask you, do you know who Steve is? Walter Isaacson wrote the biography. He's one of the premier biographers of our day. He wrote the biography on, Ein, biography on Einstein and Ben Franklin. And while Steve was alive, Steve's wife came up to him and said, I want you to write the biography of my husband's life. And he said, I don't do living people. She said, he's dying. He's dying of cancer. So Walter Isaacson wrote the biography of Steve. By the way, I can hint to you, you do know Steve one way or the other. If you have an iPhone or an iPad or if you have a Mac or a MacBook or have you ever seen the Apple logo, then you know Steve Jobs, right? He's impacted five industries, Isaacson says, and I won't list them all, but personal computing, animation, movies, if you've seen animated movies like Toy Story. I mean, you've seen personal computing. He transformed that. He's made all these impacts. Now, I've read Walter Isaacson's biography, and Steve Jobs is not my favorite person, but you know who is? The person he wrote about, he said, the saint of my life, the saint of my life was Miss Teddy. I break for teachers. If I had a bumper stick, it'd probably say that. I break for educators. But I'm here to tell you that you're all in this story in this way. Miss Teddy guided Steve to make better decisions. Better than fireworks under the chair and fly leaves that say, bring your pet next week. He began to, to focus on what he could do with his life and to make the most of it. And we want to do that. And what did Teddy teach him to do? I would say at least three things. Start at the finish. Or in other words, lock on to something. And he locked on. Another thing she taught him to do was to sit down and to consider. Listen up. He began to listen to her and trust her. Another thing she taught him or helped him to understand is you've got to lean in. You've got to learn to say yes to your teachers before they even ask. Let's unpack that, if you will, those three things from the words of our saviors. Because if Miss Teddy got it, I'm sure she got it from a higher source than herself. Did you know that the Lord Jesus Christ taught us how to make the right decision every time? Now, I hope you'll think about a major decision you have coming up. But I mean major or significant to you, not to me or to the person beside you. Do you have a decision you're facing now? My dad died 21 months ago. And I found that in the 18 months following his death, I struggled with decision making. So I turned to God's word and found a pattern in his word for making decisions and to make the decision right and right every time. Would you open with me to Luke chapter 14 and read it with me? Luke 14, please. All of us turning together, you open your copy of God's word. I'm reading from the NIV as I'm learning from you what is the translation you usually use. I am just open to whatever that is as long as it's a good translation of God's word. Now listen, in verse 25 of Luke 14, Jesus tells us the cost of being a disciple. Jesus is no bait and switch savior. You know what I mean by bait and switch? You ever got a call from someone and they say, I have a great offer for you. Now I've gotten so many of these calls, I can smell a bait and switch coming. You know what I'm talking about? We have a free vacation to Disney World for you. That's, I can see bait and switch coming. Amen? You know what I'm talking about? So that Jesus didn't want 
Jesus didn't want you to think that he was offering to you something that would cost you nothing. Even though he goes to the cross and dies for us so that it is a free gift of God, not of works so that no one should boast, Paul writes in Ephesians, but Jesus wants us to know that when you decide to follow him, there is a corresponding cost. He gives us the cost, but hear me. This message is going to take a different look at this passage, one that I believe is valid. If the most important decision you'll ever make is, what are you going to do with Jesus? Then wouldn't you guess, wouldn't you think that the way to make every decision is in that decision? Yes, yes, it is. So the most important decision you'll ever make is in Luke 14, verse 25 and following. And therefore, the way you make every decision is, is patterned here. Let's listen and see if I can't back that up. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them. He said, if anyone comes to me and does not, whoa, 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 already I have a word circled in my Bible, hate. Our Savior teaches us to hate. Listen, let's, let's stay with it. Anybody besides me at some point in your journey ever wondered what this means? Hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life. If he doesn't do this, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Anybody ever wondered what that means? At the last, I'd like to explain that to you. I'd like to tell you what I believe this means. And it's a part of decision making. Verse 28, the first illustration of this point he's made in 25 through 27. He uses a story. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him saying, This fellow began to build. He was not able to finish. Illustration number two to support this. Verse 31. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000. If he's not able, he'll send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Father, we want to listen to your word, heed your word, and apply it to our lives. Holy Spirit, you are our teacher. Teach us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are three steps, I believe, in making the right decision and making it right every time. And the first one is start at the finish. Start at the finish. Seems a little odd. I mean, some of you have read Stephen Covey's book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. It's kind of dated now, but it was a formative book in business leadership. But in it, one of the seven habits is... Begin with the end in mind. Begin with the end in mind. Before there was a Stephen Covey or anyone, there was our Father, Son, and Spirit teaching us how to be effective in making good decisions. And here in this passage, we see that the finish line is critical. Listen to the passage again. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Most of all of us have built something, right? Whether it's a Lincoln log house or maybe it's been a full house. My mother and I were building a garage barn out beside the house, and it has occupied a lot of our time. And we sat down, and we did something very important before we began. Can you guess what that was? 
Well, it comes out in this passage. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? I've helped you to see what I think are the operative words or the key words in this passage by underlining them for you. It's not authorized by the Holy Spirit, but I think critical to understanding this passage is what I've underlined. For if he lays the foundation, he's not able to finish it. See the word complete? Do you see the word finish? Everyone who sees it will ridicule him and saying, this fellow began to build. He wasn't able to finish. Well, he counted the cost, right? So mom and I sat down and we looked at all that we wanted in this garage barn and saw if we, to see if we had the money and the materials and the manpower. And we had to hire the manpower. We had to go to the bank and get the money. And so we're putting this building together. By the way, how many of you have driven on a highway around Texas, East Texas, around this area and ever seen an unfinished building? You ever done that? Isn't that just an embarrassment? I hope it's not yours. We don't want our garage barn in Leon County to be one of those. Would you please look at the words and let me tell you that there are two words in the original here. Um, and they are different, but they are alike. One of them, it means the word to finish like as in to cross the finish line. To cross the finish line. Like in baseball, you tag first, second, third, and you're not done until you tag home plate. That's finish line in baseball for your at bat. And so it's football season. Man, I love football season. I don't think the Dallas Cowboys play at noon today. We're going to go to 1 or 1.30 or 2. It'll be fine. Just kidding. We, we will see the finish of this sermon. Amen. Praise God. Can I get a witness? Get to the end, brother. Let the, your favorite words are you're dismissed. Come on, just be honest. That's, that's finish line words. We're at the end of this thing, right? And so we know what finish line is. If you run a marathon, you come to the finish line. We've seen it if you cross into the end zone with the ball in hand and there's no flag on the field, you've made a touchdown. It's kind of finished. We like finishes. That's one word, to come to the end of it. To finish a book and come to the last chapter is something I don't do a lot of. I start a lot of books. It's good to see the words, the end, right? Now, the other word is different from that. It means that it all comes together. So not only did you tag first, second, third, and then home plate, you came to the top or the bottom of the ninth inning, and you had more runs than the opposing team. You won, and you won well. That's good, right? I'm here in Astros territory, right? So you'd probably advise me not to say anything about the Texas Rangers, right? Yeah, I got hell yeah, all right. Sorry, sorry, forgive me, forgive me, man. Jesus is more important than whether I'm a Rangers fan. But watching a team come together and win the American League West is an exciting thing. Because that was strategies. That wasn't just one bat after another bat. That was coaching. That was a coach or a general manager that put a strategy together. Dallas Cowboys played today. Did somebody besides me put with the Cowboys? I'm praying we get a defense someday. That would be really nice. If we could strategize getting a defense, then we might not just score a point or two or, or a touchdown or two. We might win a season. That would be good. Amen? Amen? So I got some Cowboys fans here. Or maybe some people that hope we could be Cowboys fans. Do you see what I'm saying? There is finishing the finish line, and then there's finishing well. Are you with me? Finishing well. Every one of us is going to finish this life. One out of one people die. Unless the Lord Jesus comes, every one of us will be buried and words will be said over us. 
what we want is the words to be truthful and the words to be good, right? For us to finish well and for more than just the pallbearers and maybe more than just the undertaker to show up, right? We want to finish well. We want to hear more than just good words. What do we really want to hear? Can I ask you, what do we really want to hear? In this life? No. What about in the life to come? Does anybody have an, an anticipation or a hope that the Savior himself may say some words over you? Say it again. Isn't that what you want to hear? Well, you may come afterwards and say, that was a really good sermon. Or you may say, you know, that was, among all the sermons I've heard, that was one, you know. Or you may say, that never, I'm glad it came to an, I don't, but whatever you say about this message, nothing compares to the Lord reflecting on this day when I spoke his word to you. And if I hear well done, nothing you can say could compare. Amen? I'm not trying to be tacky or ask for an encouraging word. I'm saying, this is the finish for me. The finish for me is Jesus saying, you know how you ran your race as a pastor? You know how you ran your race as a husband? You know how you ran your race as a father? Well done. Did I fall? Yes. Did I get back up again? Hopefully. What is finished for you? What is fin- Before I talk about that, I'm not a neurologist or psychologist, and I'm not the son of a neurologist or psychologist, but I read an article the other day in, an, in a, 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 a neuropsychology magazine that I thought was really good. It's about goal setting. Now, the question is, how does your mind work when you set a goal? And this is worth the price of your admission. Tithe again for this, sir. This is a great illustration. We'll pass the plate again just to get some money for this. This is worth you coming, okay? Here's how your mind works when you set a goal. The synapse on the back of your brain fire sending optic ner- messages to your optic nerves telling you what to regard and what to disregard. Isn't that great? You're like... What, what? Tell me what that means. I'll tell you what that means, okay? Stay with me. I want to say that again. When you set a meaningful goal, not a New Year's resolution, I'm going to lose 100 pounds and never lose it. I'm talking about when you set a goal. The reason I do make resolutions is because I believe in the power of goal setting. But I want my goals to be Holy Spirit-ordained goals. But when you set a goal and it's a meaningful goal, you, you need to know what happens. And it happens for you automatically in this machine that God made for you called your brain. You don't have to turn the switch and turn it on. It works. Here it is again. Ready? The synapse on the back of your brain fire sending messages to your eyes, to your optic nerves, telling you what to regard, to bring into focus like with a single lens reflex camera. Or like when you take your iPad or your iPhone and you expand and you make it bigger. So what comes into focus is this goal and you see it even when you're not thinking about it. All right? Are you with me? I can illustrate this. My wife and I met and married at Field Road Baptist Church in Arlington. It was a church of around 18,000. I grew up in East Texas Church. 18,000. We didn't, I mean, 1,800, not 1,800, a lot of folks for me. My little church, I grew up in First Steps Jewett. When we hit 100, we all almost spoke in tongues. We were so happy in Jesus. <laughs> this is a big church, but I met Lori in it. It was a gift of God to meet her. And so we're met, and we were married. And so we didn't notice a whole lot of pregnant women in the church. I don't know why. The church is mostly young people, just like in this church, a lot of young people. But I didn't see a pregnant woman until the week came where we got on our knees in our living room and we prayed, God, if it be thy will, give us a child. God, if it be thy will, give us a child. 
We got off our knees. I went to church next Sunday, and I saw, guess what I saw everywhere? Pregnant women. I'm a redneck country boy. I'm going, look at her. She's about to domino. And my wife says, what's a domino? I said, look at her. Call 911. She's got to be in her fourth trimester. She says, there's three. I said, she's in her fourth one. Why was it that one week before, I saw no pregnant women, and one week afterwards, I saw pregnant women? Was it the miracle of field of road gestation cycle in seven days? No. It was synapse fire, optic nerves, regard pregnancy, and that's what I saw. Now, some are getting that, some are not, but you'll almost all get this. A couple of years ago, I was, I was a state missionary. I was driving the wheels off of my 1999 Chevy Silverado, and my wife noticed I was holding it together with bailing wire, and with duct tape. And I'm so glad I'm in a church wanted to explain what that means. <laughs> and she said these words second only to when she said, I do. Pretty close to second. She said these words, go buy yourself a new truck. I spoke in, oh, I heard the angels sing out. Praise God. I was levitating with those words. Go buy yourself a new truck. So for the next two weeks, I drove around Texas, and guess what I saw? Everywhere. Tundra, tundras and Titans and Silverados and F-150s and Rams, and they were everywhere. I mean, on the road. There may have been some cars on the road, but if they were, they were a little bit of Matchbox cars. That's one of those Saturdays, uh, we just were out of something and I made the mistake of going to Walmart on Saturday at 2. Do you know what that means to go? One lady's just shaking her head. No, no, no. She's been to Walmart Saturday at 2. Never go to Walmart Saturday at 2. Amen? But I had to go. I drove up and the parking lot was full. I think I had to park across the street. And guess what the parking lot was full of? Trucks. Synapse fire? Optic nerve, regard, truck. That's how it works. That's how God made your mind to work. Can I meddle for just a moment? Where are lost people around this church? Where are they? Where are the lost people around Garrison in Nacogdoches? Where are they? Can I just listen to me? Why don't you see them? Now, I'm just going to meddle for a moment. The elders have given me one Sunday to meddle. The deacons, I'm just teasing. Listen, why don't you see them? It's not a goal to see them. Where is that one person that's been inactive for two or three weeks? And you used to see them. Why don't you see them? Is it your goal to reclaim them back for Jesus? It's what you see. But before what you see, it's what you aim at. You aim at nothing, you'll hit it what? Every time. Jesus teaches us that here, and I want you to see it. So you start at the finish. You lock on. You lock on. So let me talk to you younger folks. If you're, if you're thinking about marriage or engagement, then how do you lock on to a beautiful marriage? You look at the finish. I remember making my way to see my pastor. I was a businessman. I was not called to ministry. Didn't know a lot about ministry. Really, uh, uh, this field road again, that church. And so I was engaged. Lori saw my, I snuck in to see my pastor. And I said, would you please let me look at the vows you're going to use? I'm going to look for a loophole. I didn't tell him I was looking for a loophole, but I was sort of looking for one. And so here are the vows we used. And I've used it every wedding I've done. And I've performed a lot of weddings. 
for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, until it's not comfortable anymore. Now, is that what it said? Until death. Speaking to those that maybe haven't married, you need to start at the finish. You need to think about what it's going to look like at the end, and it won't be easy between here and there. Can I get a witness? That's right. It won't be easy. Or, or do you have a business venture out in front of you? Have you thought about what that is going to accomplish or do? You know what it wants to look like. You know what it wants to be. Right now, I'm in business as a rancher primarily for one reason. Her name is Jacqueline Dell Willingham, my mother. I'm caring for my mother. I'm losing money on cattle. I bought at the top of the market. Isn't that smart? That's what I've been, I'm really good with business. But I've watched my mom go from the bottom of the market to the top. I have a finish line faith. It is tough being a parent to your parents. This isn't recorded, is it? I hope my mom doesn't listen, but I love her. I adore her. And I'm wanting to stand when the Lord comes for her at her graveside and say, I have no regrets about how I treated this woman. That's my goal. I'll just let you in on it. I may have lost money, but I loved her. And I honored her. I stood over my father's graveside the same way. No regrets. Start at the finish. I've spent more time on this point, which worries you if you're watching the clock, but don't. The second point. Let's move to the next one. It's right here in the passage. Let's go to the next one. Would you look at this next picture? The first one was a building being built and a guy that said, you know what? I don't know if I have enough finish. Look at the second one. It's a king. He's about to go, go to war against another king. Go ahead and, if you can, go forward there, brother. The second point is sit down with father. Sit down with father. Now, I want you to look at that picture. Don't you love that? You ever had to sit down with father and have a father kind of look at you like that? Isn't that great? I mean, sometimes father's looking at you and he's like, praise God. Sometimes looking like, well, this is the dumbest thing I ever heard. But sit down with father. The second point is sit down with father. Please look at the passage and I'll show you what I mean. A king goes to war against another king. He's about to. Will he not first sit down and consider? Underline the word consider. It's the operative word here. It's the key word. Whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000. If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. P.S. Pastoring 25 years, most of my appointments with church members for counseling were terms of peace appointments. That means they had made bad decisions, they didn't have a pattern for decision making, and they made bad decisions, and they came to my office and said, we just got to have some help. I've got to have some help. I need. I, they've got a white flag, they've raised it, and they're holding up the white flag of whatever's coming at them, the enemies that are coming at them and saying, just pastor, help us out of this mess. My job was to help them not only with the mess they're in, but to look at their decision making. Do you start at the finish? Do you sit down with Father? Hear me. People that sit down with Father every day make fewer bad decisions by far. Do you sit down with Father every day? How can you have your synapse firing, optic nerves regarding, and starting at the finish going, this is what I want to be. I want to be a good husband. I want to be a good wife. I want to be a good uncle or aunt. I want to be a good leader in the church. And not sit down with Father. 
I told you last Sunday, I am more like Martha. Give me something to do. But remember what we said? Jesus turned to Martha, the doer, like me, and said about Mary, there's nothing better than what she's doing. Which was what? Sitting and receiving the word from God, the message from the Spirit. Amen? Do you sit down with Father? And some of us do. Not all of us do. And some of us have. Not all of us are. But listen to me. If tomorrow morning you sit down with Father and you consider... That's the word, if you consider what he has to say. By the way, there's a lot of words for prayer. This is one of the better words. It it could be used meditation. Uh, Petitioning is what we do the best, right? Petitioning is when we pray for someone or for ourselves, right? I'm making a petition, God. But really a meaningful word in prayer is to meditate. Here it's consider. We sang it a minute ago. Consider all the worlds thy hands have made. Have you ever done that? What, what, we're saying, what I'm saying is, in the scale of how much you petition and how much you meditate, how much you tell God and how much you listen, don't we tend to top over here at what we tell God and ask for, don't we? What if we tip and made a little bit of a balance there and say, God, today I just want to listen to you because I don't want to be like that king that was so foolish that he didn't listen to his war council. He didn't even sit down with them and say, we've got 10,000, they've got 20,000, how are we going to do? That's kind of a duh, right? I mean, that's not a biblical word, but duh. How we, if he had sat down with his advisors, the scripture says that if you sit down with your advisors, victory is sure. Victory is assured for those who heed the counsel of many advisors, the Bible says. So if you want to make a decision, start at the finish, you've locked on, now you must listen up, listen up, listen to God. By the way, I'm breaking myself from the habit of saying just before the word pray. You ever hear yourself saying just before the word pray? Man, I can't do anything for you, but I, I'll, I'll just pray. Ryan, you know, I can't do much for you. That sounds bad, doesn't it? I can't do much for you, Ryan. All right, I can't do much, but I'll just pray. How does that sound, Ryan? Uh, just pray. Putting just, I don't think it ever belongs before the word pray. Would you think about that for a moment? It took me almost a year to break myself from the habit. Because, we, you know, at the invitation time, I'd say, won't you come and be saved? Oh, please come and be saved. At the invitation, I'd say, won't you come and join Holly Springs? We want you to be here. Won't you come and recommit your life to him? Oh, won't you come and surrender to vocation ministry? But if you can't do anything else like that, if there's nothing else, why don't you what? Just Just come pray. Took me a while to break it after years of saying it. I've got a new word for me. Today, won't you indeed pray? Repeat after me. I can indeed pray. Say it together. I can indeed pray. Boy, Ryan, I will indeed pray for you. How does that sound? I will indeed pray for you. I will in everything that prayer is, I'm bringing to you. And everything prayer has for me, I will hear God. I will listen to Him. How am I going to ever make right decisions every time if I don't listen to God? Have you ever thought about that? He said, this guy didn't listen. He didn't consider. Now, we're wrapping up. Let's go to the first part and end with the third point of how to make right decisions. First of all, lock on. The second one, listen up. So first of all, we start at the finish. We lock on to it. The second of all, we listen to Father. And so we listen up, we, we sit down with Father every day. Sit down with Father every day. By the way, 
I don't have a, a plan for my quiet time, and if you do, that's great, but I have elements that cannot get away or must be there for me to have a quiet time to listen. I have a copy of God's Word, and second is a, is a forgive me, I'm just going to admit it, a cup of coffee, forgive me, a beverage. Is that all right? Sometimes I'll be in the Word, and I'll be praying, and I'll be listening, and God will say something so sweet, and I have to just get my coffee and go, oh, yes, oh, yes. And sometimes I have my coffee cup in my hand, and the Lord convicts me of sin, like that two-edged sword, the Word is, and He begins to lay me open. I put my coffee cup down, and I go, oh, my, oh, my. By the way, both of those are helpful to me, amen? When He lifts me up and says, you're my child. You do not need to think these stinking thoughts about yourself. I need to hear that. And when he says, but you're not all that in a bag of chips. I'm still God. I need both of those. Amen. Listen up. Listen up. Sit down with Father every day. The last one, <laughs> I've got to look at you when I tell you this last one. I just love looking at congregations when I teach this. The third one is, say yes before God ever asks. Say yes before the Father ever asks. Don't do the calf at Newgate thing on me, okay? Like, but let's just admit, this is not how we think, but this is how the Savior thinks. Remember the bait and switch thing I told you about? He is not saying that, if you, mu that you must hate your father and your mother and your sister and brother to get to heaven. But he is telling us that in choosing the free gift of eternal life that Jesus Christ bought on the cross for us, that to take up our cross and follow him now means it'll cost us how much? Everything. Let's go back to this passage and learn what I mean, what the Lord means by say yes before the Lord ever asks. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, what is he saying here? For me to get this across to you, first of all, I have to ask you, would it be inconsistent of the person of Jesus Christ to teach us to hate? Would that not be inconsistent? To literally say that my disciples are going to be marked by hatred. Would that not be inconsistent? When he said, you'll know my disciples by how they love one another, right? Let me take you to a more poignant, specific moment in the life of our Savior on the cross he said seven things. Maybe next, I'm still, as your parenthetical pastor, just call me parenthesis if you want to. But as an interim, I'm your parenthesis pastor. If I'm here, we may go through the seven last things of Christ leading up to Easter. I don't know it. But one of them is, is important to us today. On the cross, Jesus looked from the cross and he singled out his mother. Did he not? And he said to his mother, Woman, thy son. And he looked to the John, the apostle, and he said, John, thy mother. On his, on the cross, dying for the sins, breathing his last, lacerated and, and, and almost to the point of being separated from God the Father and God the Spirit, his heart was for what? The care of his mother. You see that? Did he love his mother? Absolutely. By the way, quick Little, little note that I may not have a chance to tell you again. Why did he call her woman? Doesn't that sound harsh? Woman! No, 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 listen, listen. On the cross, he was motherless. On the cross, he had to die for his mother. 
I don't have to die for my family. He had to die for his mother. So in love, he singles her out and says, you cannot even be my mother today. I must be your savior. But as the one who gave me birth, and I love you and adore you, you need to know I'm caring for you beyond death. Gunoi, woman, your son. So here he says to you, hate your mom and dad. Now, I want you to do this. Really, do it. Everybody, bring first to your mind someone that if it wasn't for that person, you wouldn't be who you are today. You wouldn't be the man or the woman, the, the, the student you are today. You wouldn't be the person you are. And maybe it is listed here, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's a grandmother or a grandfather or a coach or a teacher. But someone, uncle or aunt, that walked into your life and said, I am going to be the person of influence in your life because I will love you and love you completely. I have, mine are listed here. If my little mom sneaks in and said, I heard you're talking about me, and she says, come out here, I'm probably going to walk out. You know what I'm talking about? My little mama has a lot of influence on me, five foot two, and she's all that. My dad is my hero. I go through this list, and I see the people that have meant the most to me, but I must single in on one, and she's here today. But I don't want to single her out, my wife, and I don't want to embarrass her. <laughs> just kidding, I just did it. If there's one person that can say to me, and every now and then she does, you ever had someone say to this, your wife or husband ever said this to you, your friend ever said to you, before I ever ask, tell you what I'm going to ask you, before I ever tell you what I ask you, I want you to say yes. You ever anybody do that to you? Yeah, yeah, right? Before I ever tell you what I'm going to ask, start with yes. And I try to, and if anyone comes close to getting unconditional yeses from me, it is my wife, Lori. She's been a pastor's wife. I don't know if you know what I just said. She's been a state missionary's wife when I was on the road for eight years. She's been the mother of my children and now the grandma of my grandchildren. And she's put up with a lot of stuff. So when she asks, she almost always gets yes. But you know what else she is? And, and I've talked to her about saying this on the way here. She is a sinner separated from God if it was not for Jesus Christ. Jesus died on the cross for her too. You follow what I'm saying? And so she is a sinner in need of a Savior as I am a sinner in need of a Savior. So can I say yes to her every time, no matter what? There is only one person and one person who's ever lived that has earned the right to ask me to trust him like that. Do you know who that is? Who has so loved you that Romans says, while we were yet filthy, rebellious, Distanced and separated sinners, Christ chose to die for us and died for Amen. Now, on the cross, Christ died for you to purchase a place for you in heaven. Before you'd ever heard his name, he had your name in mind. He had your destination. He saw the finish line for your life before you did. He wants you to go to him, with him to heaven. He is died on the cross, shed his own blood so that you can experience eternal life with the Father, Son, and the Spirit and all the saints together. That's how much he loves you. Greater love hath no man than this than he lay down his life for his friends, the gospel, John says. And then the epistle of John says, now we know what love is. Christ laid down his life for us, his friends. Now stay with me. No bait and switch. Jesus wants you to know how to make good decisions. When it comes to his invitation, which is not just on Sunday, but it's every morning 
and every day when there's a decision and you're thinking about the finish line and you're sitting down with him, when you start to sit down with the Father, these words should be your first words. Father, before you ever ask anything, here's my answer. The answer is practice this week saying yes. When you sit down with Father, boy, I'm so excited for some of y'all. Some of you once sat down with Father and you've kind of distanced and then tomorrow you're going to. Man, I'm excited for you. You're going to have a great morning and a great day. As you sit down with Father, can I strongly encourage you to start your time with Him by saying this. After you've praised Him and you've spent time praising Him with your lips, say, Father, you're probably going to say something to me. You're going to ask something from me. And here's my, here's my answer before you ever ask. Yes. Yes. Some of you don't know Him. You've never placed your faith in him you've thought about it you're you're close to it you're considering it you you've been thinking about what it means to follow jesus christ and yet you've wanted someone to spell out what it means it means this that he is asking you to give what he himself gave we could say today man who is this jesus that asked me to give everything is he not the one that gave everything how much of his life did he give for you how much of his blood on the cross did he spill for you? How much of the truth did he teach you? Did he hold back anything in creating you and rescuing you from sin and bringing you to salvation? No. So God's people praise him for that. Those of you who are not his child yet, would you consider that he is asking you to give back your all? And he'll never mislead you. Indian prince, India, the nation of India. He's a Hindu prince of yesteryear. He was considering becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. His father was a king um, of a community or an area in India, and so of a city-state. So he approached his father and said, I'm thinking about becoming a Christian. His father, a devout Hindu, said, If you become a Christian, I will disown you. You will never be allowed back in this home or in my land. You will be to me as if you're dead. Missionary kept sharing with him this cost and this passage, the cost of following Jesus. He became a follower of Jesus Christ. And true to his word, his father banished him and disowned him. And in his own language, he wrote a song that we all know. And it's one of my favorites. And it really helps me to understand this passage. He wrote down, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. The world behind me, the cross before me. The world behind me, the cross before me. The world behind me, the cross No turning back. No turning back. Are you following Jesus? Are you making decisions that help you, guide you, and give you step-by-step pathway to following Jesus? Starting at the finish, sitting down with Father, saying yes before He asks. Dear loving Father, You have taught us from Your Word, for this is what You've said. And through the Spirit, you've made it real to us. There are some here that aren't starting at the finish, at least not far enough. Life, Savior, life has a way of bringing us into the moment. Not enough money for bills, not enough hope for the day, not enough 
friends for our loneliness, not enough, whatever, Father. We, we, we feel insufficient and we have a sense of being direction. Maybe there's too much loss in our lives. Father, you call us to look beyond this moment and to see the end. Whether we will go to heaven or hell. Father, if there's anyone here that doesn't know they're going to heaven, they have a doubt in their mind, I pray today will be the day they start at the finish, the finish of their lives, whatever that could be. And accept you as their Savior. For those of us who are your children, and we know, we're confident we're your child, but we've strayed away from this end in mind. Maybe we think we're too old to start at the finish. Maybe we think we're too young to consider the finish. Maybe we think we're finished. Father, thank you that you are the author and finisher of our faith. We're not done, and you're not done with us. You'll never let us go. Father, help us all tomorrow, every one of us, commit today to sit down with you tomorrow in the morning. Early in the morning, we will meet with you as David did. Father, in this invitation... Here's what we want to say to you before you ever speak. Maybe you'll call some into missions or to be a pastor or to serve in vocational ministry. Here's our answer. Yes. Maybe you saw call some of us out of this doldrums financially where we, we just tip and we're going to now tithe. And you want us to give and we say yes. Yes, we're excited about that. Father, what are you saying to me today? Here's my answer. Yes. Amen. Yes. Amen. We love you. We love you. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand right where you are? Would you stand? Your friends will be here at the front. Friends are here at the front to greet you and to help you join the church. Accept Christ. Make a decision. I'll be here wandering aimlessly somewhere. Come talk to me. Let's stand together and let's say yes to God together. Standing and singing, we say yes.